You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. When I started working on this around 15 years ago, there were still players going up on stage in a polo shirt that they'd bought out of the shop, and they had a sticker on their badge saying Jim Scaffolding. You know, whereas now Rob Cross is sponsored by SAP. The size of the potential market is so big in China and Japan in particular, probably also in a few years in India and the Philippines as well, that we will go back to Asia. We've just had our fingers burnt a little bit, so we will make sure we do it at the right time with the right partner. We've had to work really hard to change the perception of darts, you know, get people to stop laughing at it. And I think by and large that's worked really well. Um, people treat darts with respect now and they know that it's fun, but they also know that these guys are playing, playing for £15 million prize money over the course of the year. They're living in big houses and driving big cars. Can't really laugh at that. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. Now, quite simply, darts is a modern sporting phenomenon. In the 1970s and 80s, it was a popular yet down-market pub pastime, whose world championship was a very UK affair. It was run by the British Darts Organisation, normally won by the British, and covered by the good old BBC. To cut a long and rather fractious story short, the PDC was formed by Barry Hearn's Matchroom Sport in 1992 to try and find a new global number one via a new competition. There will be more glitz, more marketing nous, and certainly more money for the players. These days, the PDC event is undoubtedly the premium competition in a now crowded darts calendar. A total of 86,000 beard-up, boisterous fans attended last year's event at Alexandra Palace, with prize money topping £2.5 million and the winner taking home a cool £500,000. Meanwhile, the audience on Sky TV is likely to be better than anything outside of football. This is now a sport of millionaires. It's well-marketed, year-round, and winning top industry awards for the quality of its events. There are academies, challenger tours, as darts builds for the future, and competitions across the globe as it tries to reach new markets. In the build-up to this year's tournament, I spoke to PDC CEO Matt Porter about the rebranding of darts, its recent rapid growth, and why the immediate future is consolidation. Remember to follow me on all social media. I'm Mr. Richard Clark. Sports Content Strategy is also out there on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And if you need a consultant on sports digital or media training for your professional sports team or indeed tuition and conferences on sports media and marketing, I've done quite a bit of that recently too, then let me know via my website, mrrichardclark.com. And that's where you go as well if you want to sign up to my newsletter and, of course, listen to other sports content strategy podcasts. Anyway, let's play darts, as the compare of the BDO tournament used to say back in the 80s. But we're talking PDC, Alexandra Palace, Full houses, raucous crowds and 180s with this man. My name's Matt Porter. I'm the Chief Executive of the Professional Darts Corporation. I'm also a Director of Matchroom Sport, which is the PDC's majority shareholder. Um, so on a day-to-day basis, I look after the operations and the strategy of the PDC, all of our commercial aspects, broadcasters, sponsors, ticket sales, things like that. Uh, as a sideline, I'm also a non-exec director at Leighton Orient Football Club, where I was Chief Executive when Barry Hearn was the owner. So Matt, we're I don't know, about a month away from the big one mm-hmm. of your year, uh, the PDC World Championship. So what stage are you at now and how will it ramp up before that starts? Well, we're in the uh, operational planning stage at the moment. So we're looking at everything that we're delivering to the customer from a food and beverage perspective, from an event experience perspective, 
uh, from a hospitality perspective, just just every part of the of the uh, event away from things like the matches and ticket sales and all the things that have either been done a long time ago or still to be done. So what what we're working on at the moment is uh, is just ensuring that when we get there at Ali Pali, which will be on the 9th of December, about five days before we start, that everybody knows what they're doing, when they're doing it, and what's got to go where. You've won awards for that event, haven't you? And, I mean, obviously the event's got to be massive because you're selling tickets for the event. I think it's 86,000 tickets last Correct. year. Correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it needs to be a good event, but it needs to be a good event for the TV product yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. And, and with all the other events you're doing in the darts world now, is it increasingly important to keep focused, to keep that right? Because that's kind of your core product. It, it is. I mean, that's the product that... You- away from the the darts fan that's the product that the the person in the street knows and can relate to and it's become synonymous with a where it is at alexandra palace and b when it is at christmas you know it's a little bit like wimbledon in the summer and first lord's test of the year and everything like that everybody knows that that darts is ali pali at christmas there's obviously a lot more to darts than that but we accept that for the casual fan who dips in and dips out on an annual basis and when they're a bit too stuffed full of turkey on their sofa that Christmas is about is about darts at Ali Pali, so that that's great from our side. You mentioned those awards that we've won, and you know it was great to, to pick those up. We've we've won uh, awards for for the event itself in terms of the event experience that we've delivered, uh, and we do have a, an advantage, I would say, um, over perhaps football clubs or anything like that, in that people come to the darts to be entertained and to enjoy themselves rather than particularly to see one side win or lose, which can be quite advantageous for us. And also there's there's the uh, aspect of, of having a drink and enjoying yourself when you're there which can't really do at football too easily uh, and then we've also won an award which we were especially proud of for the best operations team um, and that was really good because we're asking our staff to sacrifice a lot at a time of year when people really don't want to be at work so much you know it's long long days 13 14 15 hour days six seven eight days in a row in cold conditions dealing with a lot of people um, you know, you, a lot of our guys aren't, aren't London-based. They have to go and stay in a hotel for two weeks over Christmas, maybe nip home for a day on Christmas Day if they're lucky. You know, so for those for them to be rewarded for that level of dedication and effort that they put into it was was really satisfying. Um, but yeah, going going back to what you were saying, then you know, this is the event that that people know, and it's the event that we've got to make sure we're at our best at in every department. And the interesting thing about darts and the way that it's been it's grown since the PDC fully took fully took it on board. I was my first job as a journalist was Aldershot News, so I went to Frimley Green. Okay, right, uh, and it's a very different look and feel, <laughs> extremely <laughs> different look and feel. And darts still was in people's minds, and there still was darts around Christmas, albeit it was slightly later. But just my question is, you've managed to grow this particular product to be something different, and it's always been on Sky. Hmm. How hard is that to do? I think you, you've got to look at uh, what uh, 15 years ago, as you say, when you went to Frimley Green, there wasn't a lot of difference in the two products. You know, we were at the Circus Tavern, which was a smaller version of Frimley Green. Um, the players were of a similar standard. The entertainment levels were not totally dissimilar, although Sky had brought certain things in when they um, they bought into darts in the early to mid 90s. And I think the vision of a few individuals at Sky at the time really got a lot to to thank. Um, you know, the, the world of darts has got a lot to thank them for because they were the ones who decided that as a sport, because of the level of repetition and because it's quite a static sport, you have to have some other elements to it. Um, and 
what they brought to it was that sort of American style, as you would have said back then, American style razzmatazz, if you like. Um, and the you know the the Frimley Green product maybe didn't embrace that in the same way. They stayed a bit more traditional, and 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 as time has progressed, that's you know proven to to have not worked so well for them. Um, so I think you know it's it's about the whole package. It's about sporting entertainment. It's about giving people an experience as much as giving them a sporting event. They want to go out and they want to see um, something that that entertains them, something that keeps them on the edge of their seat, something that they enjoy rather than something that stresses them out or something that's difficult to get into or something that they can't relate to. And I think darts filled that void for people. What's interesting about the event of darts itself is. People are buying tickets, and as you say, they're not necessarily knowing who's going to be playing. Mm. But even when they get there, they won't see much, yeah, right? yeah, because yeah, it's so yeah, far yeah, away. You have to watch on the screen. And you yeah. watch it on the screen, yeah. effectively, so you're kind of watching live TV. That's yeah. all what struck me yeah. with darts. The yeah. fact that it, it is it is terribly hard to see the event <clears> as it's going on, because you're, you've got so much distance. Yeah, you, you, you can't see, if you're in the front row centre, you'd have to have very good, or oh, front row... Yeah, front row centre. You'd have to have very good eyes to to see where the dart landed in the board, but you can still get you can still feed off the atmosphere on stage. You can get the players' reactions, and, and we obviously encourage the players to be demonstrative and and quite explosive where they can be. In the same vein, we don't want everybody the same. So you've got characters like Peter Wright, and you've got flamboyant players like Gerwin Price and Michael Van Gerwen who give it plenty on stage. But there's also guys who are a little bit more reserved, and that's absolutely fine as well because not not everybody should be the same. But nevertheless, we know that we need characters. And what, what's interesting for me is when I started working on this around 15 years ago, there were still players going up on stage in a polo shirt that they'd bought out of the shop. And they had a sticker on their badge saying Jim Scaffolding as their sponsor. You know, whereas now Rob Cross is sponsored by SAP. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a different world. Every player's got their own logo. They've got their own piece of music. They've got their own colour. You know, if you just put the Michael Van Gerwen green out there and, and said to people, what is that? They'd say it's Michael Van Gerwen. It's just a colour that's synonymous with him. You know, Dave Chisnell in yellow. And there's, there's, there's all sorts of things that identify players, whether it's their walk-on song, whether it's their logo or their colour or their, their celebration. Uh, and they're things that the public can latch onto. And that helps create the atmosphere. The fact that then people are coming in fancy dress, the fact they're having a drink, they're coming in big groups as well. You tend to go to football as a two, maybe, maybe a four. People are going to the darts in sixes, tens, twelves. So they're going as a group. It's creating that social element and giving people the opportunity to enjoy themselves. How much did matchroom darts or matchroom sport, whoever runs the darts bit, yeah. take from matchroom boxing over the entrances? Yeah, I think it, I think it was already there. Really, the, you know, the the, the walk ons came about from Sky in the early nineties before matchroom's involvement came about sort of late 90s early 2000s so so that was already copied across and it was probably more based on WWE at the time right. um, so that, that you know as I said that was the American razzmatazz in the 90s that was kind of the way if you look at the early days of Monday Night Football cheerleaders and fireworks you know that was what everybody was trying to deliver at that time they dragged it back now and, and yeah they, and they have dragged it back you know there's issues over credibility obviously the walk-on girls have gone you know so the, the 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 product evolves and it will constantly evolve it's important for us that we can't deliver the same thing year after year to the same people because they'll get bored of it so we have to keep moving the product on and, and not only reflecting the times but also maybe trying to set the times as well it's interesting you say that because Sky tried to make an event out of the sport as it were with, mm. with the razzmatazz around it there's always been this issue over, about darts is it how much of a sport is mm. it is it classed as a real sport and I was thinking about this and thinking what I asked you about this and I was there thinking 
Do you really care? Because you've got a great event. Yeah, I mean, we, we, you've got a great event. We, we've so got a great event, but in the same vein, we've got you know we want credibility as well, and the players deserve recognition. I mean, a hundred percent is a sport that it's it requires a huge amount of skill, a huge amount of concentration, a huge amount of dedication, accuracy. It's, it's, it's bloody hard darts. You know, it's really hard. Anybody can throw a dart at a board. Not many people can get it within three or four inches of where they want it to be, let alone three or four millimeters. My average you know, was tw- was twenty six. There you go. Yeah, point, point proven. Point <laughs> proven. So, it you know I think it's disrespectful now when people say it's not a sport, and I'm not suggesting you were, but I no, appreciate no. there are people out there who use that argument, and it's also been proven on numerous levels that that, that it is. You know, and plus yeah. it has official recognition. I, I think my overall point is that there is almost like a British attitude. If it's a sport, it can't be an event. And mm. if it's an event, it isn't a sport. Yeah, ma- of, maybe. You, you, you although, you know, if you look at things like Rugby Sevens at, at you know, Twickenham or T20 Cricket, you know, some of the way, some of the uh, Olympic London 2012 events that were staged, like the Beach Volleyball at Horse Guards Parade, you know, there's a lot of different events now where people are focusing on entertainment. And as you say, it's funny that football's pulled back from that a little yes. bit. And football is essentially not a particularly entertaining product. You know, we, we, I was having a conversation and I won't reveal who it was with but it was an opposite number as a good friend of mine who's chief executive at a league two club and i've known him for years and we were watching a game between our two sides it was terrible it was so bad and it was raining and it was cold and it was nil nil and the skill level on show was really poor and they're you know good players whatever but just having a, everyone was having a bad day so as a product this is so bad you know, if you try and package this and take it to a broadcaster or take it to a, sp- a sponsor, and it does make me laugh when you, you you hear people in football, whether it's fans or media or whoever, away from the elite at the top of the Premier League, and they talk about how much money there should be coming into the game. Why aren't people wanting to sponsor this? Why aren't there ten broadcasters who who, who want to show it? You know, it's a, the, football can sometimes get so lost in itself that it doesn't take a step back and, and see what it actually is. And half the time, probably more than half the time, football can be really disappointing. But because everybody has a, a love affair with it that they don't have with other sports, it gets away with it. it it's almost it's too tribal for its own good and people rely and clubs rely on the fact it is tribal and aren't throwing enough into the entertainment Totally factor. play on loyalty. Yeah, but, and, and because that people want, because and my son, keep, I talk about my son a lot on this podcast, but he's a, a little experiment for me because he's not sitting and watching football games no. on the TV upstairs uh, 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 anymore. He's upstairs playing Titanfall yeah, and yeah, all yeah, that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, and he's expecting different mm. things from his entertainment. Mm. And what I'm saying is you've got a product here mm. in terms of the entertainment. Um, that is that's almost crossover between mm. the sport and the entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Which, which is slightly different. Yeah, and what we tried to achieve, and as I said, you know, I mentioned T20 and, and Rugby Sevens yeah, and, and other sporting events that, that do the same thing now because you're not going to get that emotional buy-in where season ticket holders, fans for life, people who go travel 600-mile round trips to away games, I mean, you're not going to get that in anything other than football. Because that's just the culture of this country. It's hard enough in football. It, it's, it, it's hard it enough is, for a dad is. to yeah, yeah. ingrain yeah. his son with Arsenal. I'm sure. I'm They're not doing you any favours at the yeah. moment. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's but, another issue. It's yeah, another yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard enough to ingrain them with the love of the club that I had. Yeah. Because my dad did it. And also, I didn't have half as much choice as there is now. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It's, there's so much to do. And also people want instant gratification. If they don't like something, they want to be able to go and do something else. And they want to be able to comment on it on social media. They want to, you know, it's, it's all of the, the, 
those factors about how the world's moved on now and, and the, you know the connected society in which we live people don't want to have to be restricted to routine and I'm going at three o'clock every Saturday blah 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 that, those, those sort of days are, are gone you know? so where does social media fit in in growing your players you talked about different players different colours different walk on yeah. different this different that so have you done like UFC and WWE and incentivized your your dance players to grow their social media or just encourage them or yeah or, we've or encouraged them and you know given them guidelines given them ideas of best practice given them content you know where, where we filmed them or, or interviewed them or found footage of them or anything like that that would encourage them to share I think part of the appeal of darts is that the players are still quite approachable and still quite normal in inverted commas and because of that or one of the factors around that is that a lot of the players still do their own social media which is authentic which, which is, is authentic which is what people want can cause us problems you know but that's nevertheless you know, that's, yeah, yeah, you know they're, they're problems we can deal with but you know it's, it is good for um, for fans to know that this tweet or this Instagram story or whatever has come direct from the player and not from some sort of sanitised management agency or whatever which, which I get has to happen at certain levels and does happen in darts as well but not all the time so I think for our side you know I talked earlier about the logos and the colours and the music and all that and the players know their own brand they appreciate their own brand now so they that will that's evolving and that will be reflected in the content that they put out changing over over time but it's still got that element of normal you know they'll still engage they'll still reply to fans and say thanks if people say nice things about them or you know maybe they'll bite if somebody says something not very nice about them but um, the, the fact is that social media helps us bring out the flavour of darts and the atmosphere of darts and it's something that we embrace because I've got four young guys in the next office who are full of ideas and full of enthusiasm and they don't want to sit there and write boring sterile tweets all day they want to do funny content where they relate it to something that maybe another celebrity's done or something that's been on TV or iconic moments or whatever and that's about how we can take darts to people and, and make it more relatable. Do you find the best players on social are getting the best sponsorship deals and things like that, or is it is it based on yeah, performance? That, no, the sponsorship deals are coming from performance because no. that's that, that delivers the TV airtime. You know, ultimately there might be the odd exception, very very odd exception. You could you could be electric on social media, but if you're getting smashed five 0 in the first round of every tournament, no one's going to be too bothered, are they? You know. Um, so no, you, you, Van Gerwen's crosses, Andersons, Wrights, the ones who feature in the latter stages, Price and Gurney coming through, Michael Smith, the ones who feature in the latter stages of the events. They're the ones who deliver the most airtime, most return, get the most followers, get better engagement rates, etc. You've got PDC TV yeah. as a YouTube channel and you stream some events on those. Yeah, so, it's, so what's so your it's, approach? Yeah, it's, an OTT, it's our own internal OTT platform, so it's geo-blocked in the UK and, and other, some other territories, but Essentially, if you're a darts fan in Venezuela and we haven't got a TV contract in Venezuela, you can subscribe and you can watch it. Um, we use it as priority ticket access. It's like a membership scheme in that respect as well. Um, but it does it opens up um, different levels of darts to the viewer, the hardcore viewer, the dedicated viewer. So the European Tour, which is streamed, and our Pro Tour events, of which two of 16 boards are streamed, you can watch that anywhere in the world on, on PDC TV. Um, but if you want to watch the World Championship, you need to be in a country, really, where we haven't got a, a TV deal. And that's not a YouTube channel, that's actually... No, that's, a, that's an OTT platform, it's a subscription channel. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was doing my research for this interview, and I found... I was looking at podcasts, always good for research. 
and there's quite a big culture around yeah, podcasts. Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. if you look at what ha- what's happened in a few offices across from where we are at the moment with Coogan Cassius, I feel yeah, ITV, yeah, yeah. I feel TV, and Eddie Hearn, which has been massive for the mm. growth of boxing. Yeah in this country that culture around yeah. the sport yeah. not official content yeah. non-official content yeah. that has access yeah. do you yeah. see that growing yeah. is it something you're helping yeah there, there's conversations we've had you know we, we do work with live darts on occasion um, there's a lad called Phil Bars who's very dedicated goes around I think he probably fancies himself a little bit as the Coogan of darts and good luck to him you know because he's an enthusiastic lad everybody gets on with him knows plenty and plenty plenty about darts so he, he delivers a lot of content and live darts is, is, is a, the main unofficial darts channel if you like what what matchroom boxing did was when the digital growth was was coming about sort of five six years ago they took a view that ifl tv already had uh, an audience of about hundred thousand or whatever at the time and they had nothing so rather than put their stuff out through their own channel and build, take time building it up. They just went straight in for an audience, which is fine. And, and gave well, them access to do so. Gave, gave them access to do so and, and has absolutely worked. You know, Eddie and Coogan interacting on, on videos really, really watchable. So that, that's been great. What we decided to do, because there wasn't really a Darts Coogan at the time, we decided to build up our own channels. You know, and we've done that. There's, you know, our lad Luke has got a, a nice metal certificate on his desk from YouTube saying well done on getting through 100,000 subscribers and he wants one that says 200,000 subscribers so you know we'll keep putting out our own content we've got access to the library the archives massive you know we can we can do some some straight stuff we can do some funny stuff we can do stuff with sponsors do stuff with broadcasters and hit hit people at all different angles with it so we'll keep growing our own channels on that front and and I think because of the nature of darts as well we're not like a keep referring to football but we're not like a football club where we have to take ourselves really seriously which most clubs do you know you get the odd one I think like Plymouth Argyle are really good on Twitter and you get you might get the odd the odd club that can do a little video and half laughing at itself Southampton are not bad at it but most clubs in football have to be dead straight and I get that but we don't have to be like that so we can take advantage of that and and um, and, and be a little bit more creative yeah I mean the strength of IFL TV with regard to um, Eddie Hearn boxing in general and it's not just IFL TV there's mm. behind the gloves and there's yeah. loads of them are growing yeah. up actually yeah. in the back of it, is that they are obviously not official yeah which means they do ask whoever it is hard questions yeah and that's always the issue with your guy outside yeah, I'm sure is yeah, great yeah, yeah. you're still his boss yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah no there is that but, but in the same vein we're you know, because we are a little bit less serious, yeah, yeah, that's we, we can we can address those those issues. Darts is a sport that has we've had to work really hard to change the perception of, sport, of darts. You know, and get people to stop laughing at it. And I think by and large that's worked really well. Um, people treat darts with respect now, and they know that it's fun, but they also know that these guys are playing playing for fifteen million pound prize money over the course of the year. They're living in big houses and driving big cars. You can't really laugh at that. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, these the top players are earning good livings playing in front of 10,000 people so it's got that element of professionalism but it has still got as well that element as I touched on before of being approachable and and attainable you know and and I think that's the messaging that we we try to get out and you do a good job of showing people at the events if you've got famous people there I remember Stephen Fry pig in Chardonnay that's the line that always kind of was against Stephen Fry who's kind of well, Prince Harry came. Yeah, what okay, was better for me is Prince Harry came twice. Right. He didn't just come once and say, 
oh that was good I've, I've been out with some normal people tonight and <laughs> I've got my picture on the front of the paper doing a normal person's thing he came and he had a really good time and he thought that was great and he loved meeting the players and then he came back again you know, and so that that for me was that was the ultimate vindication of the product. So he's your influencer. You know, totally, totally. I mean, we, you know, he, he won't tweet, but you know, <laughs> we can try. We can try. But, of course, the interesting thing with with what you've done as a as a governing body is you've set up academies, challenger tour, yeah. a sort of a golf or tennis type yeah. route into the into the pro. So just talk us. Yeah, well, what I mean, to, to be completely pedantic, we're not a governing body. Our governing body yeah, is the Darts right. Regulation Authority, which is good because that, again, from a credibility point of view, means we've got independent regulation. So they do all our disciplinary, all our drug testing, all our integrity, all our anti-corruption. And there was a, a, a corporate communications company called Portland who did a, a, a nationwide survey in 2017 of public perception of sport in terms of integrity and darts came out top so we were seen by the public as the most legitimate genuine non-corrupted sport in the uk in 2017 and and that's not a survey they do every year so i'm hoping we're still in that position Mm. so that was that was a real real you know uh, boost for us you know we're not a sport that's been blighted by drugs or match fixing or anything naughty like that so that's been great um, but in the same vein, so we've partnered with the Junior Darts Corporation, which is an ex-pro called Steve Brown, does a great job of working with people who've got darts academies all around the country and now around the world. He's got 50-odd academies signed up to him. So from the age of nine to the age of 18, you can play in Junior Darts Corporation events. They've just had their world championship in Gibraltar. Standards unbelievable, like teenage, teenagers, boys and girls averaging in the 90s. Um, and then from there, 16 to 23, you can play in the development tour, you can play in our World Youth Championship. So the likes of Nathan Aspinall, Max Hopp, Dimitri Vandenberg. It's one event Michael Van Gerwen will never win. Came mm. runner-up one year. But they, you know, they've all played at that level. Challenge Tour bridges the gap, gives the players who are dropping off the Pro Tour a buffer before they either stop playing completely or win their tour card back to go back into the Pro Tour. And it also gives the development tour players another stepping stone up into senior darts. So... We, th- we feel we, we have our bridging age at sort of 23 years old which might seem quite old for youth but darts is a career you can have till your mid 50s really mm. so it's not like football or tennis or whatever where if you're not through into the first team or the, the main tour at 19 20 you're not going to make it but you know we give our players really you've probably got to your 30 to be quite honest but obviously we couldn't call a, a 29 year old a youth player so we, we have it at 23 but there's, there's plenty of examples of players taking until they're 27, 28, 29 to come through and make it to the top level. And that gives them that extra little bit of maturity, that extra little bit of um, comfort on the on the main stage as opposed to being thrown up there as a, as a teenager. Um, and it just gives them th- that extra sort of buffer zone. If things aren't going too well when you're 23, 24, 25 years old, you've still got time to, to push through. The flip side is someone's got to be funding you. If you're not making a living at that age, we have you have you gone out and got a job? So then you, you're not trained, you're not practicing as much, you know. Or have you got a sponsor who's particularly patient? Um, but yeah, going back to to your point, there is a pathway all the way from being a nine year old playing in your local church hall in one of these academies or school hall, development tour, challenge tour, pro tour, Michael Van Gerwen world number one world champion. So that that's the that's the pathway. Now you you don't have to play darts in a pub anymore. You don't have to play for your local team. You can play on your own in your bedroom until you're ready to compete and then you can go out there and climb the ladder and have you done any figures because it strikes me that come whenever your tournament ends is it just around the new year time January is there, 1st, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a big boost 
of kids coming and playing <laughs> in those church halls. Yeah, I mean, the, the, done that. The, yeah, the, the academies are growing. What we look at it, more so the number of academies, and every year there's new academies coming on board. Um, but we know from our um, digital figures that the spike around that time of year is astronomical. You know, it's just sort of 10 times as many people as you'd get on a normal Saturday or whatever. So we know that the, the attention focuses on darts and the showcase of our sport is that event. And as, as I said before, that's the time when we've got to be at our best. So we're not only encouraging a generation of people to subscribe to whatever TV channel showing our event, buy our tickets, go to our website, follow us on social media. We're also you know, incentivizing a, a, a generation of people to pick up a set of darts and go, I fancy that, I could do that. It's interesting opportunity within darts in terms of diversity because you, I know you've um, allocated places mm. to the best female mm. players to play in yeah. the main tournament, what yeah. is seen as a men's yeah, tournament. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's one of those sports where there actually isn't a gender. No, gap. you're right. I mean, it, we'd like not to have to do that because we'd like there to be women qualifying in there by right. We don't have a qualifying competition in the world which women can't participate in. You know, I think there's a there's a cultural culture is probably not the right word there's a attitudinal if that, if that is a word oh, yeah. a, a approach to it if you know what I mean where women either don't play as much because they haven't got time or they don't feel they've got as much chance of progressing or they can't afford it or whatever so there's fewer women playing um, at a top level you know we, we noticed our, our world championship qualifier our rest of the world world championship qualifier which was in Germany at the weekend, won by Mikuru Suzuki, a Japanese lady who plays to an extremely high standard, played in the Grand Slam myself last week. That event was only had like 30-odd entrants from everywhere except the UK and Ireland. Last year it had 80-odd. And the feedback is that a lot of the women who turned up just knew they had no chance of getting through whatsoever. Because there's a, there's a group of about a dozen women who play at an ex exceptional standard who could play on the men's tour. And beneath that, there isn't that depth. So whether that's because there isn't a structure, like we talked about, JDC, Development Tour, Challenge Tour, Pro Tour, but frankly, that is a long, long way off happening because it will cost a huge amount of money and it won't generate any money. Whether it's because of that or whatever other reasons, you know, I don't know, but there is nothing stopping a woman going up there and being as good as Michael Van Gerwen. Um, it's just probably lack of opportunity. Let's talk about the Premier League because that was an interesting product and a development having had the huge established success of the World Championship. Then you moved into the Premier League and I thought that was really interesting because yeah. it was a Thursday night yeah. and you were taking it to, I remember you took it to Carlisle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember saying to my wife, I'm thinking, this is clever because not to be disrespectful to Carlisle. Nothing goes there. I'm not there. Yeah. I'm thinking there's a, yeah. lot, a lot going on no, there no, on a no, Thursday no, night no, in that Carlisle. Was, that was what we did. You know, we, we filled a void. At the time, we, we had conversations with our broadcaster, Sky. This was pre-Europa League days, if you think that's a Thursday night. Yeah. So there's there was no live sport on a Thursday night. And it originally was Premier League darts and Premier League snooker on alternate Thursdays. And the idea was to go to provincial towns. So we went to Carlisle, Kidderminster. Uh, we went to Blackburn, Colchester. You know, all, all away from the major cities. It's places you'll be a big noise in. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, it's places where people are actually like, oh, good, if someone's come to us rather than us having to go to them all the time. You know, if you're in Carlisle and you've got to go to Newcastle or Glasgow for, to see the show you want to see, that's not great. So let's go to Carlisle, you know. Um, 
and we filled good sized venues up to sort of you know a thousand seats or whatever and then all of a sudden we found out they were selling out really easily and it was actually my predecessor uh, Tim Darby who, who made the decision that we should go into a, arenas and we tried the Sheffield Arena and they had bought enough beer for the Premier League darts on Thursday sold out McFly concert on the Friday and a sold out ice hockey match on the Saturday and on the Friday morning they had to reorder for the other two events and it was we had someone like six or seven thousand in at Sheffield and then after that it was bang 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 it was just hoovering up all, all the venues and I'm booking the venues now for Premier League Darts 2021 Nottingham Manchester Glasgow right down you know everywhere because that road show and that idea we still go around to people we just go to the bigger cities now because that's where the bigger venues are you know so that that idea of taking darts on the road and you know wherever you are in the UK you're never more than even really you know you could say part of Western Europe now with Dublin Rotterdam and Berlin you're never really more than an hour and a half away from Premier League darts um, and we, we want people to have the opportunity to see these players and then if they see it and we keep the tickets cheap it's, you know, it's, it's a Thursday night, so there's probably not a huge amount else for you to do on a Thursday night unless you want to watch Europa League. So you go out, you go to the darts, and if you like it, then maybe you'll come to Ali Pali as well. Maybe you go to Blackpool's, the World Match Play, the Grand Slam. So we've got a lot better at our marketing, our communication with our fans. We'll send them an email, send them a survey. Did you enjoy it? Blah, blah, blah. This is what's coming up next, etc. And it's just about building that affiliation um, with, with the fan base to make it more than a once-a-year hit. So that's what Premier League Darts has really done for us. And for the sport, it's obviously propelled it to a new level now because everybody knows that you can sell out an arena doing darts, which is something that was unheard of 15 years ago. Across the board of your, all, your portfolio of darts competitions, are you generally keeping... Are you generally leaving a bit of ticket money on the table because you want... Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah we, we use a data agency. Uh, two circles who are absolute market leaders they know everything about sports data and they say to us we think your ticket prices could be. they don't say put your price up because it's not their decision they wouldn't say that but they say we think your ticket prices could be higher and we say we agree entirely but we are not about that you know we're about giving people an affordable night out that is good fun and something that you'd want to go back to so our retention rate's really high and our uh, what they call net promoter score is really high. So that's the average mark out of 10 that people give it. Our net promoter score is n- almost nine. It's the highest of any sports property that, that we know this work's been done with. Um, so on average, people are given as almost nine out of 10, which is, is you know shows us that we're doing the right thing. It shows us that we can't stand still because the right thing will become the wrong thing one day, mm. but it shows us that we're going in the right direction at the moment. And the other tournaments you've developed in, I've got a list of them here, and it's <coughs> you've uh, you've done a U.S. Open, you've done a championship, yeah, you've done yeah. a Champions League, yeah, we've you've used all the names, we've used all the names. You're not winning any points no, for originality no, no. on no, the list. Well, don't worry, there's no IP, on it. there's no IP protection. <laughs> no, <laughs> but but you, you've, you've although interestingly, I was invited by UEFA a couple of months ago to go to uh, their offices in uh, in Geneva, which was a fantastic experience along with representatives from Euroleague basketball and an ice hockey organisation because we all use Champions League. And it was a, it was sitting down and talking about how we use the name Champions League and what we do to to exploit it for any society. So you've got different tournaments. How are you using them in different ways? Obviously you've got a Champions League and a World yeah, Cup. They're obviously yeah, yeah. doing their team events yeah. and individual events and premium events and yeah. things like that. But 
But just talk us through yeah, your mean, portfolio and how you're is, doing we're, it. We're quite young as a sports organisation. We're only you know twenty odd years old. Where you think like NBA or ATP or PGA have been around for donkey's years and had you know forever to evolve their their schedule. We've been in a major growth phase over the last 10, 15 years, reacting to demands from broadcasters and demands from fans for content. And sometimes broadcasters will come to us and they'll say, we want a darts event, but it's got to last three days, Friday night, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, blah, blah, blah. So it's no good us going back to them with, with an event that lasts two weeks, because it's not what they want. So, excuse me, we've had to develop our, our portfolio of events based around commercial demand and based around what works for the sport. So we've got a balance between ranked and non-ranked events. We've got a balance between events that only the top players in and events that anybody can be in. Um, and you could argue some of it's a little bit messy, but it's just the way it's evolved over time. And now we're a lot more stable. We know that we've got basically our calendars full, so that we know we've got the maximum pretty much amount of content that we will ever have because we can't start. We're not. We're not going to start doing two events on the same week like the ATP do for example because we're just not big enough to, to do that and actually they would possibly say on occasion some of their events aren't, aren't big enough you see the secondary event in some weeks uh, you know really does struggle and, and we don't want events getting pulled and, and it's, like it's 128 pros you've got isn't it 128 so. pros yeah yeah and obviously don't forget darts matches are generally a lot shorter than matches of other sports so you could do a 128 player event if you wanted to in four or five days but you know regardless of that the you know the, the calendar has, has evolved because of commercial demands and we're now finally at a position over the last two years I would say and going forward now where when we sit down with our players association to talk about our rules and our structure and everything like that that we have got something that's fixed and firm and we know that it's going to be around for the x number of years to come that we can just make the little tweaks to make sure that the rankings are fair the invitations are fair, the seeding structures and draws and everything like that. Um, just because sometimes we've had to, in the past, put square pegs in round holes as things have come out of nowhere. And now we are able to say, actually, no, this is going to be this, this is going to be that, we're going to lose that, we're going to bring in that and, and just keep it a bit more a bit more regular. So I think it's one of them, if we had this conversation in 20 years' time, we'd be a lot more stable than how we've been over the last three to five years because we wouldn't be going through an evolution of our calendar so much. And in terms of gro global growth, obviously you went to Vegas yeah. very early on, yeah. the Desert Classic, um, and you went to other places. I mean, you've been to Shanghai, yeah, you've been to Dubai early on, yeah, you've been yeah, to New yeah, Zealand. Yeah. Obviously a heavy focus in the US and you've got um, the European tour yeah. for the, the heartlands in Europe. So... What determined where you went and when? I think predominantly it was it was TV coverage. It was knowing that we had a market out there. Um, so culturally, was it a good fit? Were people likely to want to come to watch it? Because darts is played everywhere in the world pretty much, but it's not watched in many places in the world. So it's getting that re-education of the darts community in each country from just turning up in their local bar and playing to actually buying a ticket and going sitting on a beer keller style table and watching. You know, so that was a challenge, but we knew if we had TV coverage, it was getting an audience, and we had appetite from a broadcaster to help us with production and things like that, that, that we had a chance. So when we go into Dubai, the best will in the world, we don't do it for the Emirati community, because they're not, they're not darts players, but the expats are. So the Aussies, the Brits, the Germans, the Dutch, who all live in the Middle East, they came out to, you know, to watch it there. In Australia and New Zealand, culturally, 
bang on for the Aussies and the Kiwis, but also massive expat community, also loads of TV coverage. In America, thousands and thousands of players, no fans, no darts fans in America, but we, we've got enough people who we can hit and say to them, hey, we're bringing the best players, why don't you just come and watch them? Now we did Vegas because obviously it's an exciting place and it's great for the brand and everything like that. Um, but it's you have to remember the size of America as well. It's still a pain for everybody to have to get to. So now we're looking and saying, right, well, the majority of the American darts world is on the East Coast, so we should do something out there. Um, so that, that will be the, the strategy going forward, to take the product into people a little bit more, like we've done in the UK, rather than expect people to, to travel to the product, because it can be expensive. I was interested in terms of your European growth, that... Well, I'd have expected you to plough straight into Holland. <laughs> Barnevelt, Gerwin, Van Barnevelt, Van Gerwin. Van Gerwin. Yeah, yeah, You've got yeah, to, yeah. The Dutch guys are coming over. They were coming over yeah. Frimley Green when yeah, I was yeah, watching well, Frimley yeah. Green, let yeah. alone what they've yeah. got now with a great event. Yeah. And yet, I just... No, we took you weren't there as much we, as I thought. No, we, we, we took our time. Obviously, Holland's a small country, relatively small country. Um, we had a lot of content in the UK and a lot of content in Germany that Dutch fans could visit. So it wasn't like it was completely out of reach for them. Um... In the nicest possible way, they can be quite a difficult crowd to please, Dutch, and that was them telling us that themselves. So the key message was to do the right thing at the right time, and that was not just to go in bang with six events in Holland or whatever, you know, it was to, to drip feed it. So we do a European tour event there, did the Premier League in Rotterdam there. We now do a Premier League double header in Rotterdam there. Um, because we had a night cancelled because of the snow in Exeter a couple of years ago and we needed to reschedule the night. So Rotterdam was sold out, so we thought, right, let's do a second night in Rotterdam. Worked brilliantly, we've repeated that. Probably won't last forever, to be quite honest with you. But, you know, at the moment we have a two-nighter in Rotterdam and we have the World Series finals in, in Amsterdam. That's probably about enough. You know, the Euro European Tour, Premier League and World Series finals, because, again, small market. Um, and, you know, th that's still... 50, 60,000 tickets. It's still a lot of people. Um, and for a, a small country like the Netherlands, I think to go out there with six, eight events a year would just be overkill. In terms of the places you've been to, which one has over-indexed, has over-achieved? Which one's the outlier that you G wouldn't have expected? Yeah, Germany over-indexed. Um, and that came about through TV coverage on Sport 8, Sport 1, which was... The, main German sports cable channel back in the well 10-15 years ago still a big channel but not perhaps as big as it was it now sub licenses some of our content from DAZN who are our main rights holder in DAC it doesn't have any elite players really Max Hopps in the top 32 but you know he's someone who's still progressing he's not somebody who's peaked yet um, whether he can get in the top 10 top 6 we'll find out over the next few years but Whereas in Holland, the, the boom came about because Raman van Barneveld became BDO world champion in the 90s. In Germany, it was nothing to do with that. It was just culturally, again, a good fit. German guys like going out, having a beer, having a laugh. Well, you what you're creating is a beer keller yeah, with some darts going on. We go to Oktoberfest and it's basically darts without the darts. You know? I mean, they might have 500 yes. years worth Absolutely. of German history. It, but regardless of that, it's darts without the darts. With some sausage you know? in there as yeah, well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Meat products. So it's, um, it is exactly that. Um, and that might be why it works so much because it does culturally fit. But again, it was on TV a lot and it was just, just a free advert for our, for our product. People like what they saw. 
And we've got a very good partner out there, still have a guy called Werner von Molka, who runs our, our license for PDC Europe, based out of Munich. And he had a vision, and then once we'd done a couple of isolated events, um, we came up with the European tour concept, and now we, we, we have seven, eight events in Germany every year. What about difficult places to go? I mean, China's always been yeah. a difficult place for anyone to go. Dubai, well, yeah, the I, association is with beer, isn't it? Yeah, with, with Asia's dance. really difficult. Asia's really difficult. There's lots of players. They're mostly soft-tip players. So they play the electronic game that you, that you see that isn't really big in the UK at all. It's not, them, not something we relate to. It's played a lot in Southern Europe and a lot in Asia and America. Um, culturally, we found it difficult there. We don't have offices. We don't have boots on the ground in those countries doing marketing, doing content getting out there doing commercial deals you know so we're trying to do it remotely or with agents not always made the right choice with agents to be brutally honest in the past as well so that's been a challenge it's been expensive um not delivered sensational returns for us but the size of the potential market is so big in china and japan in particular probably also in a few years in india and the philippines as well that we will go back to asia We've just had our fingers burnt a little bit, so we will make sure we do it at the right time with the right partner, um, and and see where we go. We know there's there's, you know, uh, we know there's you know, potential upside for us and, and growth for the sport, but um, we're just we're just a little bit cautious about jumping straight in. Yeah, you're not the first sport to go into Asia. Think, oh, not sure. Yeah, step out step and need, and but you know you've got yeah, to go yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did. But you know, Asia had. Uh, I think Paul Lim was an American. Yeah, but so he was, played out of Singapore. He yeah, played out of Singapore. Yeah, yeah. So, and you're saying you, you don't really have a standout German player. Do you need a standout Asian player to bring it up? I think you do if you're looking to sell tickets out there. Um, you know, I think probably you. We've got an Asian tour, but they're player only events. There's no real spectators or anything like that. They're live streams, but they're just halls full of players playing and and, and whatever. There's no there's no crowd. The standard of player is very, very good, but they are not known particularly well or at all, really, across Asia. But we know we could go there with, um, with our European players, and that would be great. But until we have somebody for them to want to aspire to be locally, um, you know, it's probably going to be tricky for it to really get that cut through. So hopefully we can get some Asian players on the tour regularly and, and featuring on TV. And just finally... I normally end with where are you going in the future yeah. well you've kind of said that you've got your events so you've got your full calendar but you're tweaking you're honing it down you're improving yeah. you're, 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 you're panel beating it into the yeah. perfect shape is that is that almost your consolidation period having had some growth yeah it is it, it is you know we, the, the growth has been really really quick people think we've been around for a long time we haven't you know in the sports context we're, we're a real baby organisation you know there's so there's only 25 years worth of 27 years now worth of history in the PDC so that growth that evolution has been quick and for the most part successful but it's up to us to work out how we can take it to the next level and whether that's through you know our content distribution you know OTT platforms that are springing up Dazona a fantastic partner of ours globally and, and you know they're growing massively in the territories that they're in and will go into more territories um, whether it's through that whether it's through putting other live events in the right place at the right time as you say just just tweaking our product to ensure that it's right keeping that evolving slowly rather than evolution rather than revolution in that um and and growing we're in no rush you know we're young we've done things mostly right so far 
we don't want to get them wrong, so we will pick the right markets at the right time with the right product and go in there and see what reaction we get. Matthew Porter, thank you very much. Thank you. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Thank you.